the Word of God. For it's in accepting and practicing the Word, as we just read, that we are, are released from the condemnation of our sins through the blood of Christ and then evidenced by our practice of the truth, we know that the wrath of God will not fall upon us. If you have a Bible, please open with me to Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 1, and we'll focus our time this morning on verses 16 through 21, so we'll kind of bring this first chapter to completion, Lord willing, this morning. We want to look at these verses under the, under the title of the light and the reliability of God's word. There are so many adjectives, even from this single text, that we could apply to God's word. The two I, I kind of fell on that just jump off the pages here are the light and the reliability of God's word. This is such an interesting passage. There's so much going on. Peter has so much to tell us, as he often does, just packing so much, such a broad look of topics in just a few verses. He addresses his authority. He adds some backing to his message as he talks about being a witness of Christ, being a witness of Jesus as he was transfigured on the holy mountain. But even beyond that, Peter is setting forth for us the authority and the veracity and the sufficiency of Scripture. He is showing us that God's Word is true, and it is reliable, and it is powerful. It is light in this dark world. We will see that the Holy Spirit is authoritative in the writing of Scripture, but the Spirit is also authoritative in the reception, in the understanding, in the interpretation of scripture. And these things we cannot miss. These things affect how we read and receive and apply God's word. All of this comes after Peter has spent this entire first chapter writing about the call to holiness for the believer. He's told us that we must be holy because it's in this way that entrance into God's eternal kingdom is granted to us. He, he's written in these last verses that we looked at last week about why he is, he is so dogmatic in applying the truth. The, these things pressed Peter, and they should press us when we see the power and the light of God's word. It should empower us. It should embolden us. It should send us out with wind in our sails as we proclaim the gospel of Christ to a lost and dying world. So again, there's a lot to see here, and, and it's, it's hard to narrow down, but... It's good, I think, to try to, to try to take a zoomed-out view to see all of these verses in this context to, to see where Peter is driving. So with that, I want to read our text, and then we'll ask the Lord to help and to bless our time in His Word. If you would, and if you're able, please stand with me as we read Scripture. 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. This is inerrant, inspired, infallible Scripture, God's holy Word to His people. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we are with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. This is the Lord's word. May he bless its reading and write it upon our hearts. You may be seated. Now join me, if you will. Let's bow to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you now. And we rejoice in Christ, our Redeemer. 
We lift high your great and majestic name, for you, O Lord, are worthy to receive all honor and glory and praise. I pray that you would give our minds some comprehension of your great power and your great majesty. Lord, give us some understanding of that glory that Peter witnessed, along with James and John on the mount when Jesus, when, when he shone, when his face was showing this beautiful glory. Lord, give us a glimpse and an understanding of your great glory. Lord, I pray that we would give attention and devotion to the truth of your scripture, the truth of your word. Lord, help us to understand that you have the words of eternal life. Help us to understand that all instruction, all wisdom, all help needed for this life is contained in the scriptures. If we lack wisdom, Lord, we must ask you and you will supply without reserve. Lord, help us to know that it's your word that instructs us in the way that we should live, showing us what is sin, showing us what is righteousness, and showing us the the ways to which you have called us to live. Lord, as this book is inspired by your Holy Spirit, we recognize the need that we have for your Holy Spirit to come and illuminate our hearts and our minds. Lord, I pray that you would give us humble hearts and eager hearts. Lord, eager to receive and apply your truth, give us eyes that see and ears that hear. Lord, we ask that your spirit would move within our hearts really in a miraculous way for our flesh is so weak flesh is so wicked, but Lord, your spirit is strong and mighty. You are able to write your word upon our hearts, to reveal to us our sin, to grant us repentance, to give us victory, and to conform us to the image of Christ. And that's our prayer as we come to the word today, that you would do those exact things, ultimately resulting in this conformity to Christ, to the praise and the honor and the glory of our great Savior. Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Lord, I pray that all that we say and do as we're gathered together as your church today, that would all magnify your great name. Help us not lose sight of the fact that we're gathered for one purpose. We're gathered for the singular great purpose of glorifying you. We glorify you as we know you more. So would you reveal yourself to us? And would you transform us? Lord, would you accomplish all the work that you have and intend to do among your people today? We ask this for your glory, and in the name of the Lord, Savior, and King, Jesus Christ, amen. So after a little bit of consideration, I think Peter's main point can become clear. Again, there's a lot that he says here, but I think we can really pull out and find kind of a single driving emphasis. Peter does not seek to undermine the importance uh, of eyewitness accounts. We know that Scripture, that Scripture helps us to understand and define and trust things to be true on the basis of witnesses. So Peter's goal is not to nullify eyewitness accounts. But Peter wants to take us to something greater. He wants, us, wants to take us beyond what mortal man might be able to tell us to show us the authority and the veracity of the scriptures. He wants us to see the sovereign authority of God on display through the working of the Holy Spirit in his holy word. The argument, as we often see in scripture, goes from the lesser 
to the greater, from the eyewitness account to the whole authority of God's written, revealed word, the lesser to the greater. Peter's intent is also to point our minds to Christ. If you you read these verses, surely you see the glory of Christ. If you don't, you're blind and not paying attention because Peter reveals it plainly. He shows us Christ's glory. He tells us that Christ is the light, the light that will come to, to blind and put away and defeat all darkness. So as Peter sets forth to show us the authority of Scripture, he also wants us to see the glory of the Savior. So really, we, we can kind of narrow this down. The pe- passage will set its sights on this primary point that as we walk through the dark world, as we await Christ's return, we must hold firmly to and submit fully to the Scriptures. We must allow the Word to be a light, to our, a lamp to our feet, and a light to our path. That is our goal, that is the aim, is that we think about this dark world in which we live, we submit ourselves to Scripture, and we allow the Scriptures to, to illuminate all that we are to do. We allow the Scriptures to be a light to that very darkness. The Holy Scriptures are sure and authoritative. They're reliable, and they give light to those of us who are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus was described in John chapter 1, verse 9, as being the true light which enlightens every man. But how does Jesus enlighten every man when we don't see him face to face? It's through the Scriptures. The Scriptures are God's Word to reveal us the light and glory of Christ. Jesus promised us that he would send us the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth comes to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Comes to convince and convict us as believers of sin and righteousness and to show us the judgment that we avoid by God's good grace. It's the work of the Spirit. And Spirit accomplishes this work by guiding us into the truth, by revealing to us His Word. So really, our our time this morning is going to focus around the Word. As it should. We begin in verses, we're going to take verses 16 through 18 kind of in one lump and work through them and just, just take that to, to see and understand the veracity of the word, the veracity of the word. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, Such an utterance as this was made by the majestic glory. The Lord there said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Peter says, We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now when we come to chapter 2, in the weeks ahead, Lord willing, Peter is going to attack head on the false teachers that were attacking the church. But he begins here kind of setting up how his ministry, how his proclamation of Christ was different, what was set apart, was distinguished from those false teachers. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the powerful working of Christ. Rather, we spoke the truth. This shows us the nature of false teachers. That idea of cleverly devised myths shows us the nature of false teachers. They go and they have not this outrageously false story, but the Word gives us this idea of of a sinister teaching that is close to the truth, close enough to the truth that it can be propagated, and and some will believe, and, and they will follow after that lie. And Peter says, that's not how we preach Christ to you. We did not come as the heretics to create stories and fantasies to draw you away from the true Messiah, but rather we came to you and we preached Christ. And from that, we must understand that there is a great importance in the knowledge and understanding of God's Word, and there's great importance in what we would call spiritual discernment. 
Spiritual discernment is that by which we know God's word and the spirit of God in us helps us distinguish between right and wrong, between truth and error. error. When you walk in the spirit, when you practice godliness, the Lord gives you discernment. It's not this mystical understanding, this mystical application where, where you see clearly between two things. It's the clear application of the truth. It's the clear understanding of the gospel of Christ. It's the clear understanding of how we are called to live. We must stand firm against the cleverly devised myths of our day, and we do so by knowing the Scriptures. We're in a room full of children who will go out into this world one day. They need to be full of the book. They need to be full of the word while, they're, while they are young and their minds are, are empty and they have so much room for knowledge. Fill it with the knowledge of God. Fill them with the knowledge and the fear of Christ. Because they'll go out into the world and they will be faced with these myths. They will be faced with these stories, with these half-truths that Paul would say in Galatians are a completely different gospel must know the truth. We must know the truth. Because that's not just a battle that faces young people. It's a battle that faces every person who is in the world. We're to be in the world, but not of it. We're to be, as we'll see later on in the text, lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, holding forth, holding out the word of life. We do that as we know the scriptures. Peter says, that's not how we preached Christ to you. We didn't do this, this mythical, this fantasy thing, but we were eyewitnesses. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Now, if you note there, Peter has shifted from I to we, from singular to plural, but we know that this letter is being written by Peter alone in the inspiration, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So what is he doing there? Where, where does he talking about when he shifts to we. Think very clearly, if you know the story of the transfiguration, he's speaking of himself and James and John, the three men who were with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. So without directly stating it, Peter is affirming the three gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke where those authors told us about the transfiguration of Christ. Because he says, not only was I there, not only did those men here, but there were three others, or two others, James and John, who were there. So he affirms the veracity of Scripture in his retelling of this story. So that's four accounts in the Bible that tell us about Christ receiving glory from his Father while he was Jesus, the God-man, while he was on the earth. So this account is true. And it's verifiable. And that's really the, the, the purpose to see is why this is included in, in these, this set of verses. But before we go on, you, you've heard me use that illustration of the forest and the trees. Well, we just saw the forest. We saw the forest. Why is this in this little text? But let's not miss the beauty of the individual trees that Peter lays forth here. He says, we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ because we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from the Father. Matthew 17, verse 2, Matthew's account of this says of Jesus that his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. That's the glory of the Savior. This is some forward-looking account, really, of Jesus, where they saw that eternal glory that Jesus was going to return to after he completed his task on earth. This is showing the victorious Christ before he had ever gone to the cross. It's God's way of showing us that that work might as well have already been finished. Christ was going to accomplish his purpose, and we we can press that all the way forward because of what those texts do. You could look at, at Luke or at Mark, both of them, chapter 9 and both of those, but Matthew 16 and then into Matthew 17 give us a clear picture of what was going on here. Matthew 16, verse 28, and then we'll read through 17, verse 2, just to 
to set this. This will not be a full exposition of the transfiguration, certainly, but just want to see a little bit of the glory of Christ in this. Matthew 16, verse 28, Jesus speaking, he said, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Fantastic statement. And then just as the other gospel accounts do, Matthew picks up. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. He led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. This is the fulfillment of 1628. When Jesus said, you will not taste death until you see me in my glory of the coming kingdom, this is the fulfillment. This is the glorious Christ who reigns forever. Dear friends, see the glory of Christ here. This is a foretaste of Christ's coming kingdom. Do you long and do you yearn for that coming kingdom? Does that foretaste of glory fill you up? Does it make you hungry? Does it press you on? You must understand the greatness of this event. But notice Peter doesn't just speak of glory. He says, for when he received honor and glory, honor and glory from the Father. So, so it's not just this brilliance of the glory and majesty of Christ, but Christ received honor from his Father. That ought to take our minds to Philippians chapter 2. The humiliation of Christ and then his exaltation. You think about that. He was humiliated. He learned obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then God bestowed upon him the name above every name. For at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They do that to the glory of God the Father. And so as Peter points to the veracity of Scripture, do you see that he points to the glory of Christ and the honor of Christ that Christ received because of that sacrificial work where he took your sin upon himself? where he bore your sin in his body on the tree so that you could die to that sin and be made alive in righteousness. By his wounds you are healed if you come to him in faith and repentance. Faith is a gift of God. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Peter continues on and, and, and he tells us uh, of that statement of the Father. The statement that the father made on that mount. The father said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now we could stop and meditate on Christ as the beloved only begotten son. And we could be here the rest of the day meditating on that. But I want to take you from there. And I want you to consider that statement with all the glory and with all the honor that Jesus had, and remember that in Christ, you are a beloved son. In Christ, you are a beloved son, and with you, he is well pleased. Not because of anything you do, but because of the merit of Christ. Do you ever stop and consider that what the Lord says of his son here applies to you? If you are alive in Christ, this statement, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, all of that is heaped on top of you because you are alive in Christ. That should fill you with joy. That should fill you and press you forward in devotion to honor and obey and to serve the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness, all his people. We are his beloved. We are not his only begotten, but we are his beloved. So Peter says, we've made known to you the power and the coming of Christ. This, this glorious, majestic power and the coming of the Messiah. And it's true. And it's verifiable. 
there are many witnesses to these facts. The focus is on Christ. Now we must remember that as, as we fight to stand upon the truth, as we fight for the authority and to prove the veracity of Scripture, let us always take our focus back to Christ. For Christ is the central figure of the Scriptures. So moving on now to verse 19, we've seen the veracity of the word, and now, again, a point where we could apply many different adjectives. I want to look at this, verse 19, under the heading of the light of the word, the light of the word. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Perhaps the ESV translation is helpful with that first phrase. The ESV says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We, we have this confirmation in our experience. In this verified experience, we confirm the prophets. Effectively, Peter is saying, from this, dear ones, you know that the Old Testament prophecies are true because they are confirmed and they took place in the Messiah. It's a glorious truth, a glorious reality. The Reformation Study Bible states about this, that the apostolic testimony of the New Testament that confirms the prophetic word of the Old Testament gives us even more assurance that the prophets and the apostles have both testified of the truth. On either side of Christ, the before Christ and after Christ, we have these accounts that show us that Christ came, that he accomplished what he said he would accomplish, that he accomplished what the Father said he would accomplish. He accomplished all the plans and purposes of his Father. He came to do his Father's will, and he did it. And we have this shown in the Word. Calvin writes on this, that the truth of the gospel is simply proved by a twofold testimony. Christ has been highly approved by the solemn declaration of God, and that then all the prophecies of the prophets confirm the same thing. So Peter's saying, we've got those prophecies confirmed and fulfilled. We have seen the glory. It's a veiled view of the glory of Christ, for no man can live after he's seen the glory of Christ. But we have seen it. We have beheld his glory. We have known it. We have experienced it. And that confirms the prophetic writings. Now, if we have the prophetic word made more sure, if we have the prophetic word confirmed, dear friends, can we realize, and we do, in a group of friends and like-minded people, but we must hold to and we must affirm that with this fully confirmed word, we don't rely on the philosophies of man. We don't rely on culture's God, little g God. We don't rely on the culture's God of self and emotion. We don't rely on our feelings or our opinions. We rely, we stand on the truth. We stand upon God's word. We don't need the whisperings of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the most dangerous heresies that enters into evangelicalism is that we get these little whisperings from God through the Holy Spirit that lead us. No, we don't. We have God's Word, all of it revealed, and we have His Spirit to come and apply it. When you ask the Lord for wisdom, He doesn't teach you or show you or give you something that's not revealed in Scripture. His Spirit leads you to walk in the truth. To walk down the paths of righteousness. To walk in the right way that you would go. We must defer. We must be devoted to and we must defer to the scriptures. We must defer to God's word, not our feelings, not our emotions, and not our opinions. Peter continues on, he says, to which, to, to this prophetic word made more sure, you would do well, you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. There's no denying that we live in, in days of darkness. 
You turn on the news, you watch one cycle of the news, and you will see the darkness and the depravity of man on full display. Unrestrained sin and depravity. We live in this darkness. And what is our response? It's to pay attention to the word. It's to give heed to the word. To be zealous for the word. To submit ourselves and our lives to the truth. To turn our minds to the truth and to dedicate our lives to it. Our response is to dwell upon that which is good and right and pure and honorable and pleasing to the Lord. We must give attention to the word while we allow it to do its intended work. Do well to to pay attention to the word as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Let the word do its work. Let the word be a light. Let the word confront darkness. Let the word confront sin. Let the word empower you as you confront a brother or sister or a sinner who refuses to come to Christ because they love their sin. Let the word be the light. You be a light in the way that you live, but let the word do its work. Paul told the Ephesians, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Walk as children of light. May remember what was said of Jesus at the beginning of John's gospel. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Light shines in darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness, in a way that text tells us, could not take hold of it. The darkness could not stamp out the light of Christ. Let the word be the light and do its work. Spurgeon was said to have spoke of the word being like a lion. And there's a few quotes kind of that he would variously use about the word being a lion. I think the one that applies best here is that you open the door and let the lion out. Do you consider the word to be like a lion that is going to go out and devour whatever darkness the Lord intends? You may try with all your might to do it, but you don't have the strength to do that. Let the lion out. Let the word out. Preach, proclaim Christ. Preach and proclaim the whole counsel of God's word. Give your life to knowing and to living according to the whole counsel of God's word. Jesus himself, dear ones, is the ultimate light. The life of Jesus exposed darkness. The life of Jesus exposed the dark and evil deeds of the dark and dead hearts of the people of his day. It's that same light of Christ that exposes dark, dead, evil hearts today. The life of Christ is revealed again in the Word of God. We must practice the truth. We must live in the light. We must walk as children of the light to the glory of God the Father. As we do this, thinking about, about the practice of letting the Word do its work, letting the Word be a light, If you have ever proclaimed the gospel to a lost person, if you've ever confronted one in Christ with the word when they're in sin, you can probably relate to the idea that sometimes the word, when it's being brought to bear, sometimes it's like a light switch. You flip that switch and you get light immediately. The light comes, you proclaim the word, and it's like a light switch. It goes off, and there's the light. But sometimes, friends... The light of the word is like a sunrise. If you watch a sunrise, if you ever wake up at dark and and wait for the sunrise, what you see is that slowly that sun rises over the horizon and it erodes away at the darkness. Now, that light is always there. That light never goes anywhere, but it rises over that horizon. And then before you know it, you have light. You have the brightness of day. And sometimes the word is like that. You preach it, you teach it, 
You proclaim it. You bring it to bear day after day, month after month, year after year, and you feel like you're seeing no results. But in God's grace, the light of the word erodes away at the darkness. And then before you know it, there's light. And it's a brilliant light. It's a glorious light. It's a light that overwhelms the darkness. We must hold forth this light in the things that we say and the way that we live. And how long do we hold forth this message? In verse 19, you, you pay attention to the, lamp, to the word as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Until the day dawns, until the morning star arises, until Christ returns. This has the flavor of Hebrews 3 verse 13. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that you will not be hardened in the deceitfulness of sin. As long as it's called today, as long as you have breath, you pay attention to the word. You hold on to the word. MacArthur says that Christ will one day terminate the earthly night of sin and spiritual darkness, and he returns in glory to establish his kingdom. Praise and glory Hallelujah. We look to that day. We work toward that day. We long for that day. Until Christ terminates the darkness of sin eternally, as long as it's called today, we have this as our duty, to hold forth and to proclaim the word. That's what Paul said in Philippians 2, verses 15 and 16. Prove yourselves to be blameless, and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast, holding forth, proclaiming, Paul says, the word of life. As long as darkness exists, you preach Christ. You hold to the word, you hold the line, you stand firm, you don't give in to the whims and the ways of our culture you stand firm and you don't move because you're holding the word and Christ is there holding you. He's being your anchor. You will not be tossed by the storm because you have an anchor. His name is Jesus Christ. So remember the light of the word. And as you do this, you're going to have an argument come up. It's going to be the world is going to tell you that that word is not true. That word has no authority. So let's look now at verses 20 and 21 and consider the authority of the word. So we've seen the veracity of the word, the light of the word, and now the authority of the word. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will but by men moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. The authority of Scripture, plain and clear, is because it's God's Word inspired by His Holy Spirit, period. The authority of Scripture is because it's God's inspired Word. Every word is true. Every word is reliable. Every single word is inspired by the Holy Spirit. We could rest there. We could end there. But let's just dig in just a little bit here. Just think about what Peter says. He, he firstly says, first of all. Know this, first of all. This is important, Peter says. Know this. Understand it. Think about it. Put it into practice. Know this, first of all. No prophecy is a matter of one's own interpretation. And this undercuts so much of what goes on even in evangelicalism today. So-called Christians will tell you what the so-called truth is because of how they feel about it or what it means to them. The question is never, what does that text mean to you? How do you interpret that text? No, the question is, what did God intend to say in that text? What did the original author of that letter mean when he wrote it to that original audience? 
It's not a matter for one's own interpretation. And friends, we must be careful that we don't directly or even indirectly fall prey to asking that question of what does that text, what does that passage mean to you? Because we have to ask, what did God mean by it? We have to, I think, take extra care, especially as we are dealing, I think, maybe with children in that. Because we want to teach them as young as we can to understand the overall authority of God in the Scriptures. Our culture promotes individualistic narcissism whereby everyone just kind of establishes their own truth. There's, there's no higher authority because you are your greatest authority. That's what the world would tell you. In effect, the world would say that you could write a letter, you could send it to a friend, and then that friend or any other person or even some other person 2,000 years down the road could read that letter and say, oh, well, this is what they intended to say. No, you are the original author. You, you are the one who wrote that. You define what was intended to be said. Thinking of the world here is utterly absurd. We must have that mindset. We must have that understanding that the world has really lost its collective mind. It has run into such utter foolishness in this idea that we define our own truth. That is not true. God defines truth. We must, I think, guard against letting culture erode away at this base. It's not necessarily that you'll wake up tomorrow and and say, okay, yeah, you define your truth and and you can define yours. It's that over time, culture will keep beating you and and, and gaining ground and gaining a step and gaining a step. And then five years, ten years, decades down the road, generations down the road, suddenly we've lost the authority of Scripture. That's what happened Back after the days of Christ, is it not? That, that over the centuries leading up to the Reformation, we lost the authority of Scripture. Dear friends, we stand firm. We must stand firm and remain. So interpreting the Word is the Lord's work. It's the Lord's duty, and the Lord retains authorship, original authorship over His Word. I think that must show us that the study of Scripture at times can be very hard work. To study Scripture rightly requires beyond just a cursory reading. It requires beyond, I think, even what we would call a devotional type of reading. Because we've got to get at the main point. And if you're not careful to to always get back to the original intent, what you'll find is over time you lose the authority of God's intended writing of Scripture. We must come to God's Word like the psalmist. Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Come to Scripture with that humility, with that resting in the Lord. Christ told us that this was the work of the Spirit. John 16, he said, When when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will guide you into the truth. The Spirit does the work. He will not speak on His own initiative, Jesus said, but whatever He hears, He will speak. I think that passage then really gives us a, a helpful tool for interpretation. A tool that we must use is the fact that the Spirit will illuminate our minds. John 16, 14, the very next verse, Jesus said, He will glorify me. That is, when the Spirit is illuminating the truth, that is the ultimate goal, to glorify the Messiah. So if you are trying to to apply and interpret a challenging scripture or you're in a challenging situation, you ask yourself, does this interpretation, if you're measuring two interpretations, does this glorify God? Or does it allow me to pursue fleshly desires? And if it glorifies God, you can safely then think, you can safely take the next step forward at least to saying that this is the Spirit's work. Now, I want to say one more word here before we leave this idea. 
uh, as we think about the, the idea of authorial intent, about the idea of you said the thing, and, and so you are the one that determines its meaning. That, that's true, but there's one caveat that we really need to understand, and this applies, I think, especially in the life, the local life, the local relationships of people in a church. And that is, when someone says something, when a fallible man says something and lives another way, we can question the actual intent of what was said, the heart behind what was said. Now, we need to give grace. We need to be charitable and patient, for surely the Lord has been patient and gracious to and with us. But... We need to be careful here because this, I think, is a primary way where Satan will deceitfully weasel his way into the life of people where, where you just have this default blocking response of, oh, you, you don't know my heart. When somebody says something that's unbiblical, when somebody commits a sin, when, when somebody engages in a sinful lifestyle and you confront them, their default answer, can you don't know my heart. You can't question me. You don't know the intent of my heart. I would say to that, Scripture would say to that, wrong. Wrong. Jesus said, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. You act out of that which fills your heart. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to occasionally sin you may lose your temper, you may commit some other sin, and your heart is not this malicious, overwhelming, person-hating, evil-filled heart. But out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, you act. And we need to hold on to that idea. We need to not over-realize this idea of the intent of someone who says something, because that can become the ultimate block. The ultimate get-out-of-jail-free card to just say, you don't know my heart. My heart is fine, so, so let it go. Leave it alone. That, that's not biblical in any way. And this is where healthy and, and deep relationships come into play because if you don't know somebody, you may see an action that may not reveal their heart. But if you do know someone, if you've walked closely with that brother or sister, then you can see the fate of their life. You can see the direction and the projection of their life, and then you can know by the Spirit and in grace and in love how to speak and how to apply the truth. So may we be, may we be careful to do that rightly, with graciousness, with love, and with patience. Peter continues on, No prophecy is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Scripture is not up for our interpretation because Scripture was not written by mere men. It was written by men who were carried about and moved by the Spirit of God. Peter is speaking, I think, really to, to the Old Testament prophecies. But Paul applies this idea to all of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is inspired by God. Everything in the Bible is God's Word. It's God's written re Word revealed to us and written for us. It's not for our interpretation. It's for the glory of God. Matthew Henry wrote about the Scriptures. He said, The very words of Scripture are to be accounted the words of the Holy Spirit. And all the plainness and simplicity, all the power and virtue, all the elegance and propri propriety, they are to be regarded by us as proceeding from God. Henry concluded, Esteem and reverence your Bible as a book written by holy men, inspired and influenced and assisted by the Holy Spirit. That is God's word to us. We live in dark days where sin and evil abound. Hold fast. Hold forth. The word of life. Esteem your Bible as the very words of God written to his people. Esteem your Bible as that which is authoritative. That is given for all of life. 
Cling to your Bible. Know the Word of God. Know your Bible from cover to cover. For it's all given for, for correction, for training, and for reproof. Know your Scriptures. Walk with the God who is revealed in the Bible. You probably have heard that quote from Spurgeon. The, the, the Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. You know the God of this Bible, then whatever storms may come, whatever evil you may face, you're able to stand firm because you are walking with the God of all things. Know this God, know this book, and walk with God. Walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Seek to know this God. Seek to know and proclaim the Christ who is the Messiah, who is the central figure of this book. Know him, know his work, be filled with his spirit, and then you stand steadfast. You are immovable. You abound in the work of the Lord to the glory and praise of God and God alone. May he write his word upon our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed ask that you would write your word upon our hearts, that you would take this truth and help us to, to know it and to receive it and to apply it. Pray that we would walk as children of the light, that we would put off and put away darkness and that the light of our lives would overwhelm this present darkness. But greater than the light of our lives, I pray that the light of your word, the light of the glory of Christ would overwhelm the darkness of our age. I pray that Christ would be made known, that he would be glorified. I pray that Christ would be glorified in and by and through us, his people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.